0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. Many of you have been here before, so you know I've been giving a series of talks on this particular list in Buddhism called the Paramis, the Ten Perfections of the Heart. And it's a especially thorough list of qualities. For uh, many weeks in the spring, I talked about generosity or dana, which is one of these. And now I'm talking about morality. And I know morality has a certain charge for it, we often paint it in terms of black and white, good and bad, but that's really not the training. All of these ten qualities of the heart, and I'll just go through them quickly so you get a flavor of what I'll be talking about and what this list that the Buddha used is about. So there's generosity and morality and renunciation and wisdom and kindness and equanimity and patience and resoluteness. And what am I forgetting? Uh, Yeah, wisdom. Didn't I say wisdom? Mm -hmm. Determination, which is the same as resoluteness. Truthfulness. I think that's the one I missed. And energy. Truthfulness and energy. So basically, the basic, basically, the angles on the same thing. We're we're looking at the heart or mind that's undefiled or not obscured by our self-centered. So when the mind or heart isn't weighed down, isn't colored by self-centeredness, it's expressed in these ten ways. That's sort of a nice image. And we can use these ten qualities as a way into the heart or mind that's not weighed down by self-centeredness. Like if we spend some time reflecting on truthfulness, developing it as a present moment quality, then it would open up all these other qualities. Same with morality. So think about morality not in terms of black and white, but as a training mechanism. That's really what it's meant to be. We're using a particular window on our experience to develop or to free up the heart, maybe is a better way of saying it. So I'll just describe a particular way of thinking about or seeing This development of morality, this training. So, you know, we have in every moment we have this particular predicament where we have, you know, what we could call an experience or our our life situation. We're seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and having a tactile experience and we're having mental activity. So, in any moment, all of this activity is happening. And all of this activity, which I'll just call our life situation or our experience, all of this activity is activating or stimulating this other piece of the present moment, which is this this uh, bundle of dispositions or habits. So when I see all of you, or and I'm here, and sensing what's going on and all of the mental activity that's going on, all of this activity, all of this experience triggers or activates different dispositions or habits, tendencies of this mind or this heart. And all of that together, you'd say the external situation and the internal situation, this mix, and they're not really separate, is really what we call the present moment. They're not really separate in the sense that the kinds of dispositions or inclinations that are getting triggered are affecting my external experience. So if a lot of hostility is getting triggered right now, then that colors how I'm experiencing, you know, you guys. They don't like me or whatever. Or if I have a lot of, you know, love or um, feeling of connection, feeling of belonging, getting triggered, activated, then I'm going to have a different experience here in the present moment. So we have this mixing of the external and the internal. And what arises in that mixing are all kinds of intentions, impulses to do things, to not do things. And this is really where morality is born. Like, how do we relate if we're not awake, if we're not mindful at all to this present moment, which means we're actually seeing the present moment in this way. We're noticing that uh, aspects of our habit energy are getting activated because of what's being known and seen and thought. And we're also noticing what's being seen thought and heard. If we're unaware then whatever intention gets triggered whatever the most predominant intention or impulse that gets triggered, we're just gonna act it up, in a sense blindly. We just do what, we're, in a sense, what the mind is telling us to do, what the intention is telling us to do. You know, these people are really interested in this talk. They seem sincere. I should give a good talk. I should try to really share something of value. Or, these people don't seem to care at all what I'm saying. You know, maybe I'll cut it short and go home. (laughs) So different intentions arise. And if we're mindful, we can see the different intentions. And we can see that some intentions are colored by greed, neediness, wanting. Other intentions might be colored by fear or anger or irritation and other intentions might be colored by compassion or forgiveness or patience or wisdom so in this moment if we're not mindful it doesn't mean we're always going to act unskillfully because we may be unmindful but the situation is triggering activating a lot of wholesome intentions in the mind but we're doing it blindly so we're, we're sort of in a sense blindly acting out compassion or at least uh, the semblance of compassion. I'm not sure you can truly be compassionate without some self-awareness, some uh, present moment awareness. But for sure we can be relatively skillful and unmindful. But we're not learning, we're not aware that we're being skillful. So there's no reinforcing of that tendency. Not a deepening of that wholesome tendency of the mind in the same way if we act on if a unwholesome intention like hostility or irritation or impatience or jealousy or judging critics uh, kind of critical mind if that gets triggered and we're unconscious well it just gets acted out and that acting it out that sort of blind devotion to it tends to reinforce that tendency of the mind So morality is, more than anything, this training to be awake in this moment, every moment. And in particular, to be awake of this mixing and what this mixing activates, what intentions come up into the mind because of this mixing of our tendencies, our dispositions with what's being seen, what's being thought, what's being heard. And then out of that comes up intentions or impulses, inclinations. And if we're mindful, if we let wisdom do its work, then the work of wisdom is to discern which of these intentions are wholesome or unwholesome. Not that we're ever going to be perfectly clear. I mean, think about how many times we had some mindfulness in a moment, and it seemed like... The intention, like what we were about to do, it seemed like wholesome, skillful. And then we do it, and then we realize, oh, I never should have done that. It wasn't wholesome, you know. I really need to tell this person this. They, they probably really want me to share this insight I have about them with them. <laughs> you know, and we're completely missing the fact that we're really irritated by this person and their behavior. And that's really why we want to talk to them. Not about what kind we color it over with. Well, I'm just trying to take care of this person. They probably don't realize how inappropriate they are. How fortunate that I happen to be here to tell them. they probably really appreciate it. And then we learn. You know, we speak and things blow up. And uh, and we learn, oh, maybe I wasn't seeing everything that was going on there. So we don't have perfect information but we keep bringing as much of that simple, clear presence so wisdom can do its work. You know wisdom itself is an impersonal force. This is a surprising insight in practice because you know we we, we tend to want to have the insight that all of the unskillful tendencies of our mind well that's impersonal. that's just causes and conditions. That's because of my parents and their parents and their culture and you know, and I've just sort of picked it up and it's not really personal. But the wholesome tendencies like wisdom, like clarity, like being able to discern good from bad or right from wrong, that's me. But that's also impersonal. Wisdom is also impersonal. So we need to let we need to create the condition so this impersonal force of wisdom can do its work. Which is just being present so in a sense allowing all the data from the present moment to be seen, to be known. That's all. That's you know, as a practitioner, somebody interested in not suffering any more than necessary, then that's all our that's all our job. And if we try to do more than that, we tend to screw it up. So we're there trying to be really sensitive, aware, 360 awareness, or you know, however you wanna language that sort of awareness in all directions in all dimensions subtle gross inner outer no distinctions and you know that's actually the nature of the mind to be sensitive in all that all those different ways the trouble is that that sensitivity that natural awareness sensitivity it gets blocked it gets colored it gets clogged because of our, mostly because of our emotional habits, contracted, constrictive habits of mind. You know, like when we're really fearful, you see, when we're under the influence of fear, when the mind's colored by fear, we're in a contracted state. Awareness is not 360, it's not going in all directions. Things are being colored a particular way. Or if we're under the influence of, of joy, like if we're feeling good, but we don't realize we're feeling good. People this is amazing to see this. I mean it's we know when we're angry or when we're fearful, we we get a pretty clear sense how that gets in the way, kinda of colours the mind. But we tend to miss it when we're happy and identified with the happiness. We're feeling good and we're identified with the feeling good. That that also colors our mind. Do you notice this? Like Somebody calls you up and they just think you're the greatest. And so you're feeling really good. Except you're not aware that you're feeling really good. You're feeling good and you're indulging in the sense of feeling good. And then because we're not aware of it, there's this uh, delusion creeps in our mind, which is life is great. And the truth is, I mean, you don't have to believe this, but you can just stay open. The truth is life is neither good nor bad. Life is just what it is. We project you know, that life is hell or that life is heaven. We project that on our experience. Generally, we go back and forth between the two. But both are equally diluted, and they have equally negative consequences. We create a lot of suffering because we think life is good. For example, when we think life is good, then everything seems rosy. But we don't realize that underneath, and maybe in a subconscious way, we are working really hard at not seeing all the things that are, what is the word, con- contraindicative. You know, things that would prove to us that life is not necessarily good. We, and then when that really comes in and we can't avoid it, we feel insulted by it. We feel threatened by it. We want to, you know, that's not, that's not the life I signed up for. You were supposed to be nice but now you're not you know why aren't you playing the role you're supposed to be playing in my life you know we do that even with impersonal things like the weather some of the people here were just up at a retreat in northern Minnesota with Ajahn Chandra and you know it was cold and wet a lot of the days you know that's not supposed to happen in July it's supposed to be nice you know. 75, no humidity, very few mosquitoes. (laughs) So we can feel insulted, threatened, precisely because we had this assumption that life is great. Or we can be really burdened and weighed down because we think everything is bad. And then we miss all of the sort of ordinary, pleasant experience that's happening. Like Thich Nhat Hanh, Reminds us, you know, we don't notice the non two things. Because when we're catastrophizing, when we're sort of under that influence, then we don't notice all the things that are going right, like the teeth are working okay today, and, you know, the knee isn't hurting today, and this person isn't irritating today. You know, these other things may be bad, but there are a lot that isn't necessarily off or bad, but we don't necessarily notice that. So this is all. Uh, in all these words it's really about reminding us that there is this really powerful practice you can call it the practice of integrity or the practice of morality or living an ethical life but it's all about being mindful in this dynamic at each moment and the dynamic depends on only one thing which is this awareness now this awareness has a couple qualities Now, what allows us to see the different intentions that are arising many intentions in any moment or in moments so that we actually there's a choice there this is how we participate this is why we're not living just a determined life in a way life is very much a natural lawful unfolding and it can appear like there's no place for choice but there is a choice in that moment where we're seeing the different Intentions, And if there's wisdom there doing its work, wisdom will discern the quality of the intentions, whether the intentions colored by what in Buddhism we call the three unwholesome roots, greediness, aversion, and delusion. Delusion just means not seeing things as they are, versus the three wholesome roots. You can imagine these. They're just the opposite, non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion. And the Buddha often talks about things in the negative, the positive and the negative, because it makes it more universal. Like, instead of saying non-greed, if I said generosity, well, that really limits it. But the, the mind without greed is much more than just generosity, although it includes being generous. But it's a mind free of greed. That's what non-greed is. Or a mind free of aversion. So we could say Kindness. But uh, it's even more broad than that. And non-delusion means seeing things as they are. So we want wisdom to do the work of noticing, is this intention under the influence of fear, under the influence of non-fear, under the influence of impatience, under the influence of patience? And then naturally, again, without you or anybody having to do anything, if we see that some of the intentions in the mind are colored by unwholesome, being fed by unwholesome qualities, then we just, we know they're dangerous. It's like we don't go there. We don't act them out. Now, we can't make them go away necessarily. We may still feel impatient. That impulse to be impatient, the impulse to strike back, the impulse to take what isn't ours, to be greedy, that still may be there. But what also is there is wisdom doing its work, which is saying, don't go there. You know better. If you go there, chances are something unwholesome, unpleasant, like suffering is going to arise for yourself and maybe for others. So don't go there. And in the same way, if, if wisdom does its work and it sees a whole an intention, and you know, with whatever wisdom we have, it seems wholesome. It seems like we could just act it out. Well, then there aren't any breaks there. The body, mind, heart naturally can flow in that direction into action, into words, because there's no restraining, no refraining going on. And in this way, this is how choices are made. You know a lot of morality it revolves around choices should I or shouldn't I? Should I have another drink or shouldn't I have another drink? Should I do this with this person or not do this? Is it okay to take this or is it not okay to take this? Is this an okay way to earn my livelihood or is this an unethical way to earn my livelihood? Is it skillful, appropriate to say this to this person or is it not skillful to say this to this person? And we have to understand, I mean, at least for my life, we it's never the conditions are never perfect the information is never perfect and most importantly in my case at least the wisdom is never perfect in that moment we never know for sure whether this impulse this intention is colored by unwholesome roots or wholesome roots you know often it's mixed. so you know one teacher wise teacher from Thailand one of the great Thai Buddhist saints from the last century, Ajahn Mun, said, You know, if you don't know, don't act. You know, wait. And this is a, it's not a perfect instruction, because there are probably exceptions to it, but it's generally a good instruction. Like if we're not clear, if we're having some impulses or intentions arising, and for whatever reason, we can't get a good sense of, what the driving force underneath the intention is, is it fear, is it anger, is it greed, or is it something wholesome, if we can't be clear, then we just wait, you know, so much of a spiritual life is knowing how to wait, you remember that from many of us, especially maybe, oh I think it's still read, uh, remember Siddhartha from, by Hermann Hess? And in that, the character that is sort of modeled after the story of the Buddha, although it's quite different than the historic story of the Buddha. But it was uh, Hermann Hesse's uh, attempt to capture the feeling of the Buddha and the teachings of the Buddha. And uh, this character, one of the characters in the book, who became a practitioner, said that he one of the things he could do, I forget, there were three things he could do well. Maybe fast, and one was weight. Anybody remember what else it was he could do? I think there were three things that he sort of prided himself that he had developed the capacity to do. And this is an important capacity to be able to just wait for clarity. And, you know, we can think of that as being weak or passive, but that's a very bold thing to do, to just hang in there not knowing, knowing that we don't know. That's sometimes... That's profoundly wise to know that we don't know what's right, what's wrong, the best way to handle the situation. And we can own that with whomever is also involved in that situation. I don't know, but I know that I don't know. I know that I don't want to choose right now. So I'm asking you know, myself to be patient. I'm asking everybody else involved in the situation to be patient. Now, of course, at some point we can get dependent on that knowing that we don't know. And we can become a little lax, like, well, that's an out. So I guess I don't actually have to keep reflecting. Is this wholesome? Is this unwholesome? And that actually can be a kind of violence, too, for ourselves or for others, to keep from acting when we have enough information to act, not to be afraid to make mistakes. So this is a, a deep part of the practice where We understand that in this moment, sometimes we have to act. And all we have, we don't necessarily have perfect clarity, but we can have in that moment the intention to want to do what's right, even though we don't know what's right. So that, you see how we're inserting a very wholesome intention. I really want to do what's right. I don't know what's right. I don't know if it's better to say something or to not say something. To do this or to not do this? I don't know. But I, but it seems that not doing is more harmful than just doing. So grounded in this intention to want to do what's right, I'm going to do something. And I will accept the consequences of this action. Wholesome or unwholesome, I don't know yet. And then this way... We understand that so much of the wisdom we gain in our lives comes from making mistakes, acting. And as long as we have this intention not to harm ourselves or others, and to really act on that intention, then when we end up harming ourselves or others, it's just like there's a beautiful feedback mechanism. Oh, I must have been blind. How was I blind? So the Buddha taught, you reflect before you do, you speak, or before you think, speak, or act. He was very thorough. You reflect during, while you're thinking, speaking, or acting, and you reflect after. And what do you reflect on? You reflect on, will this cause harm for myself or others? Which is really the center, the real heart of morality. Is what I'm thinking, saying, or doing causing harm for myself or others? Or will it, if I do it, cause harm for myself or others? Anshan Samadho has this wonderful line. He says that if we're frightened by acting in the world, that's not any good. Because then what we'll do, right? If we're frightened by speaking, saying what we think needs to be said, or doing what we think needs to be done, then we'll tend to hold back, in a sense, artificially favor inaction. But if we're not frightened by acting in the world, speaking in the world, thinking even, then if we're not frightened by the, the consequences of acting, because every intentional action has consequences, even intentional thoughts and words have consequences. I mean, we know this. If I keep, even if I never say anything out loud, if I keep intentionally stewing over something for hours and hours, it has real implications. First of all, people pick it up energetically. Second of all, if I'm doing that over and over again, I'm much more apt to act on it. Even if I know I shouldn't, in a way we can't help ourselves if we've been stewing on it we just end up saying what we know better that we shouldn't say, but because we've allowed ourselves to think it and think it and think it, it's got so much momentum that as soon as the mindfulness wavers, we're not really paying attention, we just say it. And then of course it's too late. It's like, it's out of the box, and the person says something to us, and we react to that, and before we know it, it's a big mess. So Ajahn Tamedo, this Western Buddhist monk, he says we need both. We need to be concerned, full of care, about what we say because we understand their consequences. And at the same time, we need to be, um, in a sense, concerned about not acting. You know, about being passive. We need to be in this nimble, pivotal, pivotal place which we call the present moment sort of awake to the different intentions that are arising. This is really the place of, uh, of morality. So maybe I'll leave it here, and uh, I have more to say, but it might be nice to open it up to a group. We haven't had a lot of time for discussion with this topic in the last couple of weeks, and I would wager a lot of money that... The cumulative wisdom in this room is is pretty profound, because we've all been, at least in moments, in this pivotal place, learning from it, learning from our actions and our inactions. Yeah, Julian. Does the present moment, it's a technical question, allow us to reflect on the past consequences of actions, on the present consequences of actions, and? Consequences of action. Yeah, that's a, that's a I good. Mean, it's been explained to me technically that the moment actually consists of those three things. That a moment consists of reflection, intermediacy, and the knowledge of the future of the ability to look mm-hmm. in a moment. Yeah. And it's hard to conceptualize it best way because you think of moments like that, and those are three different yeah. Three different aspects of one thing, which we call in Buddhism, we call it Dhamma, the way it is. That it's like, a, you know, like a physicist, you know, they can see something, maybe even an electron, you know, and they'll see how it's moving. And in seeing how it's moving, you know, they learn a lot about it. They learn about karma. like, Like one moment of just being present. We've completely captured the past because what is the past? What is the past? I mean, is it, it isn't anywhere, right? But we know that it has an influence. Well, this moment is the perfect manifestation of everything that's come before. So knowing this moment is knowing the past. Knowing this moment is knowing the now, of course. And knowing this moment... You know, as we understand cause and effect, seeing how things are moving now, we already know where sort of the momentum, how things are moving into the future. Just like if we see that there's fear in the mind, we know from experience how that, the consequence of that. We've tasted the consequence of that because we've seen fear in the past and how it's colored the future, how it led into the next moment. We've seen striving in the past and we've seen how striving has colored or affected the next moment. So whatever we see in this moment, we have a sense if we've been paying attention how what it's where it's going. And the other thing you brought up, Julian, that I think is important, you know, you phrased your question as a technical question about mindfulness. And you know, we often use mindfulness in at Common Ground here in a somewhat sloppy way because it's really mindfulness and wisdom together that we're talking about. It's both the sense of presence, like remembering this, remembering the present moment, which is more of the technical definition of mindfulness and wisdom, this sort of momentum of discerning what's going on, what's being seen in the present moment. And uh, I was reading today Ajahn Jayasaro, another Western Buddhist monk and uh, he, I think this is a traditional formulation, but he was talking about wisdom in these two ways, sort of like two angles on what we mean by wisdom in the Buddhist tradition. Because, you know, Buddhism is always talking about um, mundane levels of understanding and super mundane. And the way to think about that or the way to conceptualize that is mundane means from our conventional mind, where we see ourselves as separate individuals. In this world, that's a kind of ordinary, conventional view, which the Buddha calls ignorance. <laughs> but it is our conventional view. I mean, we all are under the influence of feeling ourselves apart from the whole, so we have this self-centeredness. Wisdom manifests from this, in this point of view, as this um, concern, like as an individual you know, paying attention to the present moment, I'm full of concern that the different intentions that are arising might lead to harm for myself and others. So I'm vigilant, I'm awake, I want to pay attention because I don't want to screw up my life and I don't want to screw up other people's lives. And that's one level of wisdom. But there's another level of wisdom, and both of them are operating, both of them need to be cultivated and... Just because we mostly live with the self view doesn't mean we don't want to cultivate this other wisdom. We want both. And the other wisdom has the flavor of contentment. It's a it's a sort of the development or the the deepening understanding of impartiality, of dispassion with the particular life situation that's happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Kind of spacious equanimous, impartial, uh, ease with conditions. So we're not so glued or attached to whether things are this way or that way. And you need, you see why you need both. If all we have is the vigilance, one full of care, full of concern, it's kind of tight. Because we're, we're seeing things from an individual point of view. And now we're a good individual. You know, we're an individual that understands that morality is a good thing because it takes care of me and it takes care of everybody else. So I want to live with this uh, precept of non-harming because I understand it's for my own benefit and for the benefit of others. But it's still from a self-centered point of view. And because I want to be careful, there's some tension there. There's some dukkha, some suffering there. But the other piece sort of frees up the mind because... If all we had was a vigilance, we'd probably get tighter and tighter and we'd be afraid to do anything. We'd want to hide in a closet so we wouldn't make any mistakes. And then, of course, someday we'd realize, well, that's a mistake, too, because we're harming ourselves staying in the closet or staying in the proverbial cave, running away from our responsibilities in the world. So wisdom, that deeper wisdom, what that brings is a sense of uh, fearlessness. It's actually a good metaphor, synonym for wisdom is fearlessness. And understanding that you know, there is conditioning, the mind is conditioned. Some of that condition, conditioning is unwholesome, some of it is wholesome. But it's all impersonal. So whatever moment we have, there's going to be, in a sense, a war between wholesome conditioning and unwholesome conditioning. And whatever has the upper hand, more momentum, is going to affect what we say or do. And sometimes the unwholesome conditioning or habit energy is going to be stronger. And we're going to make mistakes. But if we're paying attention, we'll learn from them. Sometimes the wholesome conditioning, you know, we know this, right? Like, oh, I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, how many times have we had that? Well, we knew better, but we did it anyway. That's a perfect example where there is some wisdom operating you know, the concern, that level of wisdom, like Mark, don't do that. But the habit of doing it is much stronger, so we do it anyway. But if we if we remain mindful, we'll naturally see the logical consequences of doing something. If it's truly unwholesome, we, by definition, if it's unwholesome, we're going to have unwholesome results. We'll know those, see those, feel those. And it corrects what was off in our conditioning and our habit energy it's a it's a a useful feedback loop you know and this is just common sense like well just let him do that because he'll learn you know he'll make let him make his mistakes he'll learn from them thanks julian other comments or questions that come to mind experiences from your life you'd like to share yes Stewing, um, and uh, I, I maybe I maybe we've talked about it before, but so what is what is a way to to counteract that? So so to, to not. To yeah. So if you didn't hear Joel, right? Joel was asking about stewing and a way to counteract that. Well, it's just that's really a question about obsessive tendencies of the mind. And, uh, you know, the thing about obsessive tendencies, we have to be honest, in some way, I mean, not in a very deep way, but on some superficial way, we feel like we're getting something from the obsessing. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. So, what's happening is the attention is just on the surface. We're on the level where we feel like we're getting something from the obsessing. And we're missing the complete picture. We're missing how destructive. The obsessing is so this makes it really simple it's not easy but it's simple we just need to complete the picture we need mindfulness to become sensitive to the whole picture when the mind is stewing or obsessing and that corrects it as soon as we see the harm that's arising that's happening in the obsessing we don't do it like if we really saw how we're tying energetically tying the heart into knots as we just revisit that resentment or whatever, we wouldn't do it. You know, we we really wouldn't. This is the great thing about being on retreats. When the mind calms down and becomes very sensitive and more calm, well, the the sensitivity is like a, a kind of vibrancy. And when the mind is calm, it's in balance. But it's like the energy really builds. But as long as the mind is in balance, it's fine. But as soon as that balance gets disturbed, like you see somebody really attractive, or you have a really disturbing memory, and if that mind gets disturbed, all of a sudden, all of that energy that was really bright and vibrant, but balanced, it leaks really fast. And the mind can get obsessive very quickly, because it's got so much energy that we've built up in the practice retreat practice. Or even a, a kind of a quiet life with a regular sitting practice, the same thing can happen. And we want this to happen. And then but the great thing about a retreat is that all of a sudden, very quickly, like instead of it being three days in our daily life, on a retreat it might be three minutes. and. In three minutes, we've done a lot of damage, but the damage wakes us up. It hurts so much. The contraction of obsessing, in a sense, is like an alarm clock. What are you doing? What's going on here? Because we felt relatively calm and spacious, and now all of a sudden the heart is tied into knots. And then, you know, we notice it. Now, it's easy to get disgusted by what we've done, which doesn't help. That's just more tying up of knots. Instead we bring that sort of patient, loving, clear, mindful attention to the energetic knots that have been wound up, tied up. And we just let it dissipate. The thoughts, the mental content can disappear in an instant, that the energetic contraction takes a little time or even a lot of time, depending on the quality of the mindfulness. But what we learn, you know, that when that happens over and over again, A kind of vigilance develops in the mind. Like, I really want to be careful not to start down this road. Because once I go down this road, it's not so easy to stop it. And even then, when I do stop it, when I do pop that content and the content disappears, there's still a mess. There's like a a battlefield that needs to be cleared up. Because for that three minutes or those three days, the mind's been revolving. And part of the revolving around that content... Is all that energetic and physical tension that goes with that obsessing or that stewing? So there's a, a kind of uh, vigilance, like, I want to be full of care not to go down that road. And we learned that it's so much easier to stop it right in the first moment of going there than it is once we've been there for a while, because it, it gets its own sort of feedback loop that's hard to break. Yeah, Edwin. Um, just I want clarify when you said uh, in terms of energetic contraction, nothing about act, like, the rising of the emotions, kind of like feelings of the body, you know, because that's something I notice uh, so often, not so much in a truth context, but say, like, uh, if I am in a daily life, so, like, that suddenly, meeting, like, a whole set of assumptions about how the day is going to develop kind of collapsed, mm-hmm. <laughs> and something else arises, and uh, you know there's a lot of a about the, the quality of what was supposed to happen in one so it collapsed and disappointed. And so I uh, noticed that, yeah, there is the awareness, but I don't want to get into there, but there's all sorts of kind of physical yeah. things that are happening, and upon which what was that last thing you said? Yeah. Well, there is a place for that patient endurance. It's a huge place in practice where we know that we don't know and we know we want to be full of care, and we know, you know we can aspire to be wise, but we're only as wise as we are in that moment. We only have as much spaciousness as we have. So sometimes all we can do is be patient. But uh, um, I, I just lost what you said. Could you? <laughs> sorry about that. Can you remind me? Oh yeah, now I remember. <laughs> yeah. So here's here's a way to think about it. Because of the past, because of the way the mind and body has worked together in the past, it's like. Uh, those ways the mind and the body has worked together in the past, the sort of physical vibration and the mental movement, mental activity, it's like ruts or grooves. It's just easier for it to move now like it's moved in the past than it would be for it to move in a new way. And so, in a way, these habit energies, they exist as like uh, tendencies that are very easy. The stronger tendencies that we have are very easy to vibrate. They're very easy to get triggered or activated. And it's almost like they're ways of seeing. So it's almost like I'm looking at the world, sensing the world in a way that will stimulate, activate those tendencies. So we almost want them to be reactivated. It's like I worked a lot in the school system uh, in the 80s and 90s. part of the time as a behavior specialist working with kids with behavior problems, and you know, in the, in the field there's this idea of uh, seeing hostile intentions, where kids that have been brought up in difficult situations, they learn to expect hostility. They're actually looking for it, and so you might just approach a child, that they're seeing a hostile intention. They think, this guy's going to hit me, or this guy's going to do something to me, so I'm going to hit them first, or I'm going to run. Before they get a chance to hit me because they're seeing this way we all have these these tendencies and so this place this energetic place is this uh, boundary between the mind and the body so we think of the body you know in terms of weight and hardness but there's also the more subtle aspect of the body and this is the realm of emotion that is both mental and physical and it's just the subtle energetic, vibratory, but they're still sensations. There's physical sensations. They're just subtle. And they change more quickly. They're a better barometer for the mind states that are moving through the mind, the mental activity that's moving through the mind. Because the mental activity tends to strum certain strings. Sometimes our mental activity strums the strings of compassion and kindness. Sometimes it strums the strings of hostility and anger. And uh, this helps us understand what's going on by learning to pay attention to the subtle sensations that have been activated. Yeah, other thoughts come to mind. Yeah, Alexis. Um, what's the actors- But of that it. it's more okay for oneself than for other people, and that makes it difficult to see um, the repercussions for yourself. Yeah. And helps keep one stuck in doing it. Is that the hacker? Yeah, and, and but who knows? I mean, we could probably, we probably should just assume that certain percentage of the people have the tendency, you know, instead of uh, inflicting harm on oneself, assuming that it's better to inflict harm on another. You know, on the other half, or whatever percent, think that somehow it's less harmful to hurt ourselves than it is to hurt others. And uh, the important thing is for us to know ourselves what. The majority of the tendencies are, so that we can be on the lookout where we're sort of masquerading wisdom uh, or ignorance. I'm sorry, is masquerading as wisdom. You know, like so. There's a voice in the mind that's saying, you know, don't say anything. You know, you don't want to cause harm, but that's not wisdom. That's harm. That's a voice of aggression. You're actually hurting. You know, one is actually hurting oneself in doing that. And we have to catch that. We have to understand. So this is what's good about understanding the, you know, a lot of this can come out of therapy, too, where people begin to understand the conditioning of their mind. Buddhism, you know, the, the training in Buddhism or the practice in Buddhism really encompasses good therapy all the way to something that's well beyond therapy. But the part that's about good therapy is, Understanding the value and knowing the mind's conditioning, knowing the heart's conditioning, so that we're less surprised by it, and we take it less personally. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Yes. Hi, El. Hi. Anxiety yeah. yeah, well, that's you know Just think about it in terms of that mixing so you've got your life situation And you have the tendencies that the tendencies of the heart body and mind and in any moment, you know, they're mixing and The key is out of that mix out of that happening to begin to let wisdom do its work to discern the Intentions, the impulses that are arising out of the present moment. So, in that mix, there will be intentions in the mind, and some of those intentions will be promoting or supporting worrying or obsessing or uh, the feeling of anxiety, and then the action that comes out of feeling anxious, you know, like to close down or to, you know, whatever might be the. Impulse coming out of the, the the feeling of anxiety, and the, the idea then is just to, to let wisdom do its work. So it's recognizing that the intentions that come out of anxiety aren't helping anybody. So we're learning not to listen to the voice, to the intentions of anxiety. To not let them color what you think, say, and do in the moment. So let your thinking, what you say, and what you do, arise out of something else, but not out of anxiety. For example, they could arise out of compassion. Being compassionate for the pain of the anxiety, for the weight of anxiety, let your actions, your thoughts, your words come out of caring for the anxiety. Or from a wisdom, understanding that anxiety is just anxiety. That fearlessness I talked about earlier, where we understand there is anxiety, but it's just anxiety. It's not personal. So let your thoughts, the actions, the words, come out of that recognition, that that wisdom recognition, that anxiety is just anxiety, worry is just worry. But the key is to keep understanding that dynamic point of mixing, and we don't have to do the discerning all we have to do is be willing to pay attention to stay there with that endurance that patience patiently seeing and feeling the moment that mixing and all the different intentions that are coming and to be interested in those different intentions or is it wholesome, is it unwholesome to be reflecting maybe time for one more Thought or question? Anybody else has anything to share with the group? Yes, Mike. Uh, I read some stuff about spiritual play, where people who have had dramatic experiences in their past later on in their life. Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of goes back, it's a long, uh, there's a lot to say here. You know, it's really worthy of a lot of time. But going back to what Julian said, you know, the, the healer doesn't really help the person go back to the past because the past doesn't exist anymore. The healer is helping the person go into the present moment where the effect of the past is alive right here. This moment is the past. This moment is born out of the past. And it's in getting to know this moment that we unlock this moment, which is really what we're doing. I know you don't, I mean, we use language and it's okay to use the language about going back into the past. But as practitioners in this tradition, we really want to understand, we want to be careful about that. We don't, because so much of our problem is we actually think there is a past and we think there's a future what we have is now this is what we have and so we go into the now with awareness and maybe the way the healer works helps the person come into the now in a more profound kind of way and in really coming into the present moment see see this person can see how right now they're holding this pain they're not just holding the pain They're recreating it and then holding it, and recreating it and then holding it, and recreating it and then holding it. Because there isn't a past, anything that's coming, so to speak, out of the past is something that the person, that each of us, are recreating moment after moment after moment. So we see we're actually looking at an activity. It's not even like a storehouse, like some energy is being stored in some little nook and cranny. It's, there's an activity of recreating that pain and reacting to it, and recreating it, and reacting to it, and recreating it, and reacting to it. We call this in Buddhism samsara. It's sort of a, a small example of the cycles of suffering. I'll leave it here, but you know, obviously there's a lot more there that we can talk about in the weeks ahead. So let's just take a few moments, let go of the words. Be okay about not trying, not striving to hold on. Feeling at ease with the conditions here in the moment. And we can reflect on our deepest aspiration to live in a way that supports The healing, the happiness, the release from suffering for all beings, including ourselves, of course. Thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.